Thanks for checking out the Real Finds podcast. On the podcast today, we have Drew Cunningham. Drew is the CEO of the Dillweg Companies, a real estate investment firm focused on investing in the Southeast. On the podcast, we talk about short-term and flex work, the future of flex work, how to manage and really get into the weeds of flex work companies. And then we talk a little bit more about implementing flex work strategies for a traditional office portfolio. If you're an office investor, if you're looking at changing up your portfolio, this is a must listen episode. Drew, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why real estate? What what got you into the business? Oh, gosh. Um, not really a very complicated answer. Um, I went to Villanova University. Uh, I went to the business school there. And when I graduated, I needed a job. Um, and uh, like everybody else who graduates college, and I had an opportunity with a uh, a townhome developer in New York, and it just sounded really interesting. So I went for it, and that's what started me. So you've uh, worked for some of the biggest names in the business, um, and worked for some pretty large REITs. Uh, I'm curious, you know, the the office is dead narrative is out there everywhere. Everyone's always all oh, office is dead never going to work in an office again. Um, what are you seeing from your perspective in the office world? Well, there is some of that. Um, let's face it, we've had a pretty big behavioral change since um, since COVID occurred. Um, so I do think uh, the work from home, um, flexible work environment, although frankly, I think a lot of people have been doing flexible work environment for a long time. Um, I actually had my own company for a while and was pretty flexible with my employees. So that's been around. But the work from home scenario is new, obviously, the last few years. Um, and I do think that that's here to stay. So that's had a a fairly significant negative impact um, on current space users who have contracted their footprint as, as a result. Um, and it's had a negative impact on demand. So it's not great. Um, does that mean that office is dead? No, I don't think so. Um, I think there's a lot of space on the market to absorb. Um, but as the economy recovers and companies grow, not all that growth is going to be in people's living rooms and dens um, or at their apartments. So um, I think office is far from dead. It's just going to take a while to get back to a very healthy um, vacancy rate. I know you mentioned flex office. What is flex office? Because the word flex is thrown around so often in the real estate world. What do you see as flex office? That is a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because <laughs> um, I actually ask the same question frequently. Um, you know, people talk about flex, and I'm the first thing I say is, "All right, so let's get straight with each other. Are we talking about flex?" <laughs> As in um, a long time ago, I was um, at a public company and we were buying flex properties in Florida. And that was single story um, commercial space, some component of which was office and some component was warehouse or distribution space. And so depending on where the, the wall between those two uses or three uses occurred, that was flex. You could flex to more office. You could flex to more distribution space. That's not really what people are talking about today. Uh, what people are talking about today is really, I think, a better way to describe it is flex term space or flexible term space. Uh, and that's a completely different animal. 
that's regular office space um, where the terms are flexible for the tenant. So in other words, they don't have to sign up for a five, seven, 10 year deal. It could be a six month, nine month, 12 month, 18 month um, sort of flexible environment. Kind of like um, the way WeWork was using enterprise space. So what's driving the demand ultimately? Because it's it seems to be um, intuitive, but why is it now that we're starting off with more you know, flexible space and what's kind of holding it back? Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, sort of, uh, I would say, let's start with how did that evolve? You know, how did we get to where we are today? Uh, because it's it's relatively new. I mean, I've been a landlord for over 35 years. And um, with the exception of co-working, which is a, um, a type of flexible space, let's put that on the side for the moment. Um, as a landlord, I was not very interested in flexible space because flexible term space is, um, it's not really a value adder, so to speak, right? The way we create value in commercial real estate office in particular is by creating rent rolls that have a lot of credit and a lot of WALT, um, a lot of weighted uh, average lease term. And flexible space doesn't do that, right? Flexible space is going to decrease your WALT, not increase your WALT. So that means when people value your building, um, they will probably, if you had a lot of flex space, or let's pretend you don't even have flex space, let's just pretend you have very short WALT, they're going to apply a much higher cap rate. So that result of that is less value. Um, so that that's a big issue, and I'm not really sure we have a we have clarity around an answer to that issue yet. That's a, a big concern actually for me, as continue as tenants continue to want uh, and demand flex space. Um, it's great for cash flow, but it's not so great for actual value creation when you're capping it. I think it's new enough in the industry that we haven't really figured that out. Is there a time down the road where some portion of office buildings act like hotels where tenants can come in on a very short-term basis and there's enough of those that the rollover is continual and the downtime is very small and it actually behaves like a hotel? And then you can apply a lower cap rate to that and it's not a, a value inhibitor. That's possible, but we're we're not there yet. So, uh, from the landlord's perspective, I think it's frankly, I think it's a challenge. Yeah. From the tenant's perspective, totally get why they want it. Um, you know, tenants tenants want what they want, and then it's a question of can they get it in the marketplace. And having flexibility or optionality is always great for tenants. I mean, it just makes sense if you if you put yourself in their shoes. I completely understand why they want that. Yeah, so I wanted to touch on that. So one of the things that we've been seeing consistently as uh, an operator of office in the Chicagoland area, we have about 2 million square feet, I would say, give or take 100,000. And um, how we've seen it consistently is our small flexible spaces have been great at reducing vacancy, great at bringing people in the building, and even as incubator incubator spaces or semi-incubator spaces. Sure. But overwhelmingly, they take a lot of effort. And in terms of the build-out costs that we're seeing today, they're not often really that profitable or even profitable at all. Um, I'm curious if you're seeing that kind of in your portfolios. 
if office is kind of or flex office is kind of like a semi incubator space or if it's an actually a pretty profitable avenue well it it can definitely act like that and i would agree with you we're seeing the same things which is why i think there's friction between owners and users right now um on this topic um I want to touch on your cost comment for a second because I think that's a, a really great point. What I found is, let's say, on a seven-year lease uh, in a in a in a good submarket, um, you know, you might have to spend seventy-five dollars a foot in TI today to get a oh, real yeah. estate tenant into their suite, right? Um, for flexible term space to really work, it has to be super attractive. Uh, there was a long period of time where we spec suites uh, were a great thing to have. They still are a great thing to have. And in the beginning, people would build out spec suites similar to a regular tenant space. And then people found, well, let's add some bells and whistles to make it even more attractive. Um, and then most recently, I think I've seen spec suites where landlords are spending $125 a foot to make <laughs> yes. them. It's almost like they've become extravagant. Oh yeah, be super attractive, so that they lease quickly. That's great, but um, and again, if you're leasing them, it's really great for cash flow. So, and I want to want to circle back to that for a second. So that's great for cash flow because you've got space that maybe would have sat vacant until you built it out for a longer term tenant. It's now leased. You're now collecting money on it. It was expensive to build, but the fact is, you're collecting money and it's no longer vacant. So that's great. Um. Again, I come back to if it's not term and you go to sell the building, then how is that space going to be capped? Let's pretend yeah. you have a building that's 50% dedicated to flexible term space and 50% normal office, and it's 100% leased. So your buyer comes in and they say, fine, let's say before um, interest rates and all that other stuff, um, they'd say, fine, we'll, you know, we'll apply a seven and a half cap rate to that, to your 50% that's leased with seven years of Walt on it. Well, if you've done a bunch of one-year deals or 18-month deals or even two-year deals on the other 50% of the building, and let's say there are 10 tenants that make up that 50%, how are you what, – what cap rate are you applying to those? There's really no Walt, and your cost to build was super high. So to me, that becomes a problem. Now, my viewpoint is coming to you from – uh, historically, a value-add buyer of office, an owner of office. So I'm not really a very long-term holder. Three to five years is our typical hold period. So what I just described doesn't work great for that guy, for that office owner. Where maybe it does work well is suppose you have, uh, and there are these types like REITs would be a really good example, where cash flow is important. And they're going to be a very long holder of the real estate for a very long period of time. They're less concerned about what is my exit cap rate because there are going to be uh, peaks and valleys that they'll work their way through and they'll sell at a more strategic time. So they're not so worried about cap rate. Cash flow is great. So I think, I think there is a place here for everybody, but I do think it depends on who the owner is of the asset and then who the users are. I hope that makes sense. So I'm I'm curious from what you're seeing in in your area of the market, right? Because we're in we're in different markets, and that's why we love yes. this podcast, right? Right. So in terms of what you're seeing in the southeast and kind of 
in the Sun Belt and areas that have really seen less of the decline uh, from COVID is the national vacancy rate. You think the primary driver of the rise of flex space that office landlords are much more willing to kind of bend over backwards for tenants, or do you think it's a change of demand? Um, that's a, there's a lot there. Um, I think that let's face it, it doesn't matter if you're a a property <laughs> owner, B property owner, C property owner, if you're public, if you're private, if you're a long term holder or you're a short-term flipper, our our enemy is vacancy. That's a fact. 100%. 100%. 100%. And so I think what what real estate owners do is they attack that problem. And so, um, you know, office building owners are a pretty uh, competitive, um, smart group of people, and they will compete. And so if – I think they'll consider anything – if they think it leads to space being leased. Now, the question becomes is, okay, you can lease the space, but is that a good thing to do? And I think that's where the, again, that's where the friction comes in. Um, Spec suites, I'm a big fan of, uh, because typically the term there is going to be three to five years. At least that's what we've experienced. We don't really do two-year or one-year spec suite deals. Um, So we like that, and that solves a lot of problems for us. Shorter term, I think, does create a problem depending on what kind of owner you are, as I described before. Um, but again, you know, people are going to do it because if it leases space and it solves a problem, um, then maybe that's a good thing. And sometimes, depending on the pressures you're under, you may just want to solve a short-term problem and worry about the long-term repercussions of that later. You've been very successful in the Southeast, particularly at developing pretty solid leasing strategies and flex leasing strategies. So I'm curious, like, what's your ideal strategy going forward for developing flex space that, you know, works for that five-year timeline? Yeah, I think um, in the assets that we own and going forward, I think um, there's a portion of a building that we would own that we would like to dedicate to some kind of flexible. Now it does, real estate is a very local business. So I think it varies greatly from place to place, um, city to city, submarket to submarket. Um, but I can, we, we have moved in this direction and we've been successful and we'll continue to do this going forward. Um, again, we've dedicated floors to spec suites. So that's been successful um, to actually um, flexible term space, um, some space in your building. I don't know if that's 10% or 15%. Um, I start to get a little bit uncomfortable if it becomes more than that for the reasons we talked about. But again, that's the kind of owner we are. Um, but I think what will happen is different owners will develop their own strategy tailor-made for them where there's some portion of their building that's dedicated to that. So when you're talking about flex terms. Um, we've been very hesitant to go in and go below the six month range. You just start to have all sorts of costs that add up and to amortize them over a six month lease. It just doesn't work. It, it tends to lose money. Um, when you get to that six to 12 month range, that's kind of our bread and butter. You start to have folks where 
they want to stay a little longer, or even if the lease doesn't work out, you don't really lose money. Is that kind of what you're seeing in terms of your bread and butter? Or are you looking for, you know, that one or that two month lease? No, not the one or two month lease. I mean, for me, short term would be a year plus. I don't even think we would do anything that's less than a year. Um, a year to two years is what I really think of in terms of flexible term space. And the one thing we haven't talked about that comes with flexible term space is there is a rent premium that comes with that. Oh, yeah. So that does help offset things. Um, it is very interesting what that premium can be. Um, we had uh, we work as a tenant and they defaulted and we inherited some of their their tenants and got a real good look at the rent they were paying. Um, those tenants, I mean, uh, for flexible term space, 18 month, two year space. And I'll be honest with you, I was shocked at what the premium was. Now we work delivered services along with that, um, that, um, justified that premium. Um, and we wouldn't deliver those same services. So maybe we get less of a premium, but I'll just, I'll try to be a little bit more concrete with you in a building where our rent was $32. Um, there were WeWork tenants paying in the low 50s. That's massive. Yeah. So, um, but again, um, there's a variety of reasons for that. And some of those things we just can't do. That's been something that we've really worked with with some of our landlords is there's, I think, a really fine line and what kind of services tenants demand and what services that they're you know, willing to pay for and then that are just absolute luxuries that really don't add substantial value to the space and improve your leasing. Um, what have you found in terms of what are the services that tenants tend to demand uh, in those kind of spaces versus what are the services that are just extravagant luxuries? Yeah. And I'm not sure if you differentiate between services and amenities, but I, I love to have this conversation because um, I find that in commercial real estate, there's sort of um, the issue du jour in a way. And, you know, <laughs> that that issue might last for it could maybe longer than a day, but um, you know it could be years. But even in lease negotiations, it seems like there's always some hot button that. You know, every tenant is focused on for a year, and then a year later, it's some other clause in the lease that everybody's attacking. Um, so I think amenities, um, I would call that an issue du jour. It's, it's lasted a lot longer than a day. Um, Look, brokers are herd creatures. It's fine. <laughs> but we've, I mean, we focused on it because, again, um, like my answer earlier, office guys are competitive, or office people are competitive, office owners are competitive, and office owners will do whatever they have to do to win tenants. So um, it was easier years ago when people said, well, look, you know, having a great fitness center or having a fitness center is where it started. Having a fitness center and being green is really good. And then it was fitness, recycling program, green, lead, energy efficient. I mean, all these things just all the time, nonstop, the list keeps growing. Um, all good things. Um, more recently since COVID, battling work from home is okay. So the tenant's problem is also the landlord's problem because the tenant needs to attract employees and they need to put those employees, they need to have space that is attractive, right? So what are the amenities that tenants want? I've spent a pretty fair amount of time looking at this. 
there is no one size fits all. There is no easy answer. <laughs> um, it's actually there's uh, it's very divergent actually from A to C. So we are we are not a um, a midtown downtown high rise class A uh, trophy best in class office owner. That's not who we are. Um, we are a, a B plus to A minus suburban with some urban property value add company. So we like to find things that are broken, go in and do a big capex spend to make them pretty and fix the problems and then increase the rent and lease them. So having the right amenities to us is very important. Um, so we surveyed our tenants about a year ago um, because we wanted to make our tenants sticky. And we thought, well, look, if we provide the right set of amenities, that's going to help. It'll help our renewal, our retention rate. It'll help attract new tenants. So we surveyed our tenants, and I was pretty shocked. I was expecting we want hub space. We want social space. We want you know, um, state-of-the-art fitness. Um, we want state-of-the-art meeting rooms with all the AV equipment. Um, we want... Uh, Especially cleaned air in the building. We want all these things, right? Yoga on the lawn. We want we want it all. And that's actually not what we heard. For our tenant class, which again I would describe as B class, B plus class, the answer was pretty clear. It was we want very well managed property. We want it to be um we're in the south, so we want it to be cold, right? In the in the summer. We want clean, cold, cheap space. There were very few tenants that said, I want a fitness room. I want meeting space. I want these other things. Now, if you surveyed um, that super-duper high-end trophy space, super-duper credit, you're going to get a very different answer. You're going to get fitness is incredibly important. Meeting space is incredibly important. Green initiatives are incredibly important. Um, all these other things are incredibly important. So I think... The answer to the services and amenities is if you're a property owner, I think you have to know who your audience is and you have to cater to your audience. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, we're going to put a link up in the podcast to another uh, podcast that we talked about surveys because that's important. But um, in terms of surveying, I think it's one of the most important things that you can do is survey your tenants. Because yeah. in our market, we found very similar things. It's a little different than the South. So like people wanted really great parking in terms of either covered parking or close parking because the Chicago winter is pretty brutal. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, but in terms of that, I couldn't recommend that anymore. Uh, so yeah. for anybody who's an investor or a broker who's out there who's trying to lease their properties, survey your tenants. And there are really good methods to survey your tenants that you should follow. Don't just send out a random survey monkey. Um, yeah. In terms of going forward and trying to understand um, what actually does lease, though, and what is effective in terms of you know long-term leases for space valuations, how does somebody uh, take that short-term tenant and create a value add for a long-term tenant? Or is that something that we're still in the process of working out? Because I know for us, we've seen some success in kind of building on that and building on startups, but we're still kind of in the process of creating a long-term solution to kind of uh, 
reconfigure perceptions of, of office space? How do you make that jump from that one-year tenant to five-year in you know, premium class A minus space? Yeah. Uh, again, there's probably like no one answer for that. Um, you made the comment earlier about some of the shorter-term tenants um, acting like incubators. I think that's true, and we've definitely had many examples of that. Um, so I think that's a that's a plus. Um, again, even if you're leasing um, on short-term basis, cash flow is good. Um, and, and and again, I, I don't mean to over harp on this, but I think it really depends on who, who you are as an investor and who you are as an owner. I think really that's where the answer lies. Um, if you're a shorter-term holder, um, flexible term is going to be tough for you to wrangle with. If you're a longer-term holder, I think it gets um, it's more sensible. What do you think is the biggest barrier ultimately for flex space valuation in the short term? Because I, I know you've consistently mentioned it, and I think that's something that a lot of people who are maybe looking at that five-year plan are yeah. a little worried about. Well, it's new. I mean, it's a new concept, and I think it's going to take us um, a little while as an industry to figure that out. So anytime you have anything new and immature, um, the people don't really know what to do with it or to how, how to value it, how to treat it, because they don't know how it behaves. So I think it's going to take us a little bit of time. I, I feel pretty confident saying that if you had if you had a building, if you had an 80,000 built foot building and it was all short term flexible leases, um, I think you'd probably have a very high cap rate applied to it because people would not have the confidence yeah. in um, in will that always have some level of dependable occupancy um, associated with it? Um, again, I refer to will office one day or portions of office one day evolve into a hotel-like um, scenario where maybe to your point, six-month term um, would not be abnormal. It could be more normal. You know, that's possible. We may end up there. I think that's going to take time. And before buyers start applying um, reasonable cap rates to that space – it's going to have to prove itself out, right? Dependability, cap rates are all about dependability, right? And so um, right now I think it's it's not dependable, it's undependable. Um, and that time, time will fix that. Eventually time will tell us um, if that concept evolves and it becomes dependable, then it'll be treated differently in valuations. Look, we're certainly living in the world of known unknowns. That's definitely yes. true when we talk about this. I, I wanted to know one thing, though, that that uh, I think you could be able to provide um, a unique insight into. So one of the things that we've struggled with, and, and we've now kind of gotten very effective at it, is kind of creating long-term procedures to deal with this changing reality. Um, and um, one of the hard things is like training staff on site to deal with six-month or 12-month leases, because it's it's constant renewals and, and it's almost more like a residential uh, circumstance than it is a traditional office lease where you're doing your five and your, your, your tens. Um, what, what are you seeing in terms of the training process and educating property managers and educating staff? Uh, because you have a large enough portfolio that I, I think you have, you know, a large enough group of staff. Yes. Um, it's a very good point. 
uh, and it is different. It's it's actually a different mindset with the leasing team first, right? It starts with them. Um, you have to change the way they think and the way that they're um, even marketing, approaching, um, being open to shorter term. So I think it starts with those people. And then, yes, it's, it is definitely a little bit more burdensome on your property management team. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are services you're providing with short term. You're, you're move in, you're move out, you're rolling over. Um, sometimes tenants can be unkind to the space, even if they're in there for um, 12 months. So on the way out, you may find yourself making repairs to or spending a little bit more TI um, on a space over and over again. Uh, I think when people do flexible term space well, like I said about spec suites, it's a pretty expensive build because you want it to be very attractive space. Um, so if you're doing it right, you're spending a lot of money up front to make it last for a long period of time. And then you're spending a little bit of money every time somebody rolls out. Um, yeah. Occasionally we found on um, even where people want an 18 month term, they might ask you to move a couple walls and then you've got a decision to make. If it's just a few walls, that's not really a big deal. If it becomes more than that, then again, you're starting to drive your your cost up, and we don't love that, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a hard thing to adapt to, and a totally different mindset um, for any of the investors out there who have buildings who are looking at reevaluating and, and trying to do some something new and, and add flexible space. What would you say is ultimately, you know, the strategies that they can adopt to to do this besides training their staff? Yeah. Um, here's what I wouldn't do. I would not jump in uh, with both feet and you know take a third of your building and turn it into short-term space, flexible term space. Um, you're, the market you're in might not even want that. So I think um, like anything else with um, investment, I think you really need to do your homework. You need to make sure that your market support is there. Spend a lot of time with the tenant rep community. Um, we spend a, a ton of time and make a ton of effort with the tenant rep community for leasing in general. Um, those guys know their clients. They know what they want. They know their needs. Um, they're happy to communicate with landlords. So um, I, I would I would uh, talk to them a lot uh, to make your decision. And then I would um, I would try to remain fairly conservative. I would stick my toe in the pool, but do it in a small way to begin with. Um, and if it works, then grow it a little bit. Um, but just because you build out short-term space also doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to lease. And we've had a floor uh, or a half a floor here and there that we built out, made the investment, marketed, and it took a long time for it to lease. We eventually leased it. Um, but I would say our expectations were for better results than we, than we had in those examples. Look, uh, we started in our portfolio with 10 spaces, and now we're pretty uh, substantial, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of the total portfolio. Uh, so um, I definitely would say dip your toe in the water. Don't jump in and do a cannonball because <laughs> you're going to learn so much. Um, so one of the things that we like to learn on our podcast about is we like to do this thing called the final four. And that's where we learn a little bit more about you, a little bit more about kind of your your philosophy on life, and a little bit more about your philosophy on real estate or the business world. And so um, 
One of my favorite questions that we ask is 10 years from now, what do you think is going to have changed most about the real estate world? Hmm. Um, well, I think you can see it coming now. I think technology um, is, a, is a huge factor um, in real estate in general. I mean, think about, think about where we were 10 years ago and where we are today. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting, all the things that have happened. Um, you know, just simple things like BTS, for example, is, you know, is a really good tool. A lot of people use, it gives you, uh, on your phone, it gives you insight into your total leasing pipeline at every building you own in a, in a very detailed, sophisticated way. Um, that's great. Uh, it's been around for more than 10 years, but not a lot longer than 10 years. Um, all of the energy management tools in buildings, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the technology that we have in buildings today that we didn't have um, not that long ago, I think that just gets better and better and better. I think buildings become um, more energy efficient, better for the environment, lower carbon footprints, all these things, I think just the sophistication um, of real estate as an industry, um, I, I can clearly see that that happening and continuing over the next 10 years. Okay. That would be one. The other would be just use. Um, and I don't just mean office space. I mean, I think the way that the world is changing rapidly, and I think the way people approach all real estate, inline stores, inline retail stores, malls, hotels, um, short-term rentals, as an example. Um, you know, there's a, a short-term rental industry that's popping up right now and maturing right in front of our eyes. Um, Apartment-like units that you can rent um, on more like hotel-like stays. So instead of renting it for one year, you can rent it for a couple nights or a week or a few weeks. Really, that's flexible term apartment. Um, that's changing. Um, so I think, I think all of those things continue to evolve and mature over the next 10 years. I think that's a very interesting point. Um, I've heard one individual on our podcast say that real estate is going to evolve into much more of a consumer good than it than it previously has. And um, definitely, I, based on our discussion of flex space, I think we're headed in that direction. But um, in terms of, of going and, and heading back, uh, one of the things we love to do on this podcast is head back in time. And Drew, if you could tell yourself, you know, a one minute spiel about um, uh, advice that you could give at the start of your career, what would that be? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say the number one thing, and I talked to, um, I talked to a lot of younger people who are graduating college and um, want to get into real estate. Um, I seem to get pinged. I have, I have three sons, so their friends ping me about, um, you know, a career in real estate. Uh, the probably the number one thing I tell them that I really wasn't focused on when I got into it is it's like it's a cyclical business, and so you have to be prepared for the ups and downs. Um, you have to be prepared for the cycles, and not everybody's built for that. So oh, yeah. it takes a it takes a certain kind of person. Um, some of us prefer to be steady. You know, a steady eddy, less fluctuation, less ups and downs. Um, so if you if you want a career in real estate, you have to understand it's peaks and valleys. 
and you have to you have to know how to navigate your way through those. So when things are going well, um, sock money away um, and be smart because eventually um, bad things happen, and then you'll have some lean years. Um, but that all continues to ebb and flow, right? It comes and goes. So, um, but that that's probably my best advice. I don't really think people necessarily focus on that when they're when they're young. Um, I wish I had been more aware of that myself when I was young. Look, I, I honestly wish enough young brokers took that mentality. As somebody who's fourth generation, um, I've seen ups and downs in my childhood. And uh, I understand that the market can be terrible. And sometimes you, right. I mean, like during COVID, it, um, there was one point and look, a huge portion of my portfolio is industrial, but still there was that down down period where it was like basically three months where there was like almost nothing going on because everyone right. was so scared. And um, there was three months where I made no no deals, no commission, zero dollars, right? And so um, for brokers who are young and starting out in the trade, I think there's been this Goldilocks period between uh, 2020 and 2023 where people made so much money. And now they sit back and they think, oh, the good times are just going to keep rolling, right? Uh, that's probably not the case. And um, I think there are plenty of investment brokers and office brokers and all sorts of brokers all over the world that are about to really struggle. And I just really hope that they uh, saved up a little uh, little nest egg because um, it's going to be uh, potentially a rough next uh, 18 to 36 months. But um, yeah, well, imagine imagine you graduated college and, and you got into the brokerage business or real estate in 2010, right? Yeah. I mean, you've had a nice run and you've, not, you've never really <laughs> yeah. seen, right? You've never seen bad. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. seeing, you're seeing bad now, um, but but bad happens. It comes, and you know I've got guys on my leasing team, um, third party providers. You know that the Cushmans and the JLLs and the CBs. I mean those guys. I, I mean some of them have they haven't done a deal in a year or two. Oh yeah. And it's really hard. And these are like very successful people um, who've done extremely well in their career, made lots of money, and are great people. Um, this is tough on them. So you need to, you, you definitely need to understand that and you need to be smart when, when you're winning. And the last thing I, I know I can be a little bit of a sap on this podcast, but if you do have a friend in brokerage that might be going through a hard time, reach out and give them a call because uh, I know enough Absolutely. people who are really mentally struggling right now. And sometimes a call can save a life. It really can. So, um, on a, on a happier note, let's go and, and switch over to to books. Um, so one of the things we love on this podcast is books, and it could be audio books. It could be, you know, you're you're an avid reader. Um, what's a book that's changed your life, and that somebody who's interested in business or real estate or just life uh, should pick up and read? Sure. Oh gosh, uh, I hope this isn't too much of a, a corny answer, but first of all, I like uh, I work very hard, so I like to shut off with um, trashy books or um, lousy TV shows or sports. That's what I do to shut my brain off. Um, there's a book that I thought was just fantastic. Um, uh, Lone Survivor is one of my favorite oh, yeah. books. You know, that's not I wouldn't call that a trashy book at all, but I mean that's that's a book where you're reading for just pure mental relief and excitement. It's, um, it's an incredible story uh, about Navy SEALs. Uh, it turned into a movie 
And so uh, that's probably one of my favorite books that I've ever read, um, just for pleasure. On the business side, I would say um, I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio. Uh, a Changing World, I think, is his last book that he wrote. Uh, I'm from Long Island. Ray is on Long Island currently. Um, obviously, a very, very super successful guy. Um, but A Changing World is a super interesting book because it really talks about the evolution of people and societies um, and debt and how they peak and they crash. Um, and I would say it's a very apropos read for today um, with all of the debt issues that we have going on and all of the geopolitical problems that we have right now. Um, that's a that's a pretty – it's a really heavy read. But the way he writes the books is he highlights things for you in the book, sort of this is important and it's highlighted. So it makes it, makes it kind of a really interesting read. But um, that's one that I happen to like in particular. Hey, I got to check that out. He sounds like uh, like a true business manager uh, highlighting the important uh, <laughs> segments right. of the book. That's right. Um, um, and uh, yeah, Marcus Luttrell and um, exactly. uh, the, the the Navy SEALs. Um, that's a phenomenal book. I would Great. also highly recommend it. I think I read that the summer before I went to law school and a uh, great book. Um, so in terms of uh, the most important question on this podcast, uh, we bring on folks like you, Drew, because you're a man or um, a person in the arena who's really knows what's going on. And it doesn't matter if you're in business, if you're in real estate, if you're in any section of the world, you tend to know and have a unique insight into who are the people that we should be bringing on next. So Who's the next guest we should bring on the podcast? So there's a lot of, first of all, real estate is made up of commercial real estate. Um, the office building business is what I know best. It's made up of a lot of great people. It's one of the great attractions about working this industry is the people are great. They love to have a good time. They love to have fun. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of good things that go on. So it's a, it's a great social business as well. So. It's hard to pick, but I would say um, for me, there's one there's one voice out there right now that seems to be kind of in front of the pack, and I would say that's Scott Reckler at RxR. Uh, okay, all right. Another Long Island guy, uh, actually, as it happens. <laughs> um, but I, I think everything that I hear coming out of um, Scott is um, is kind of right on, and I think. He's the kind of guy that doesn't really mind um, really – even if it's unpopular, he's going to hit you right between the eyes with reality, which I really appreciate. Um, and he's out there pretty being pretty vocal um, about what's happening, the impact of debt, the impact of interest rates, um, rising cap rates, uh, tenants' use of office, repurposing buildings. I mean – you know he's a very smart guy, very successful guy, and I I just I like his um, I like his clarity and his approach. So I'm a I'm a big fan of him. Uh, if you could if you could get Scott on your podcast, uh, that would be a good a good land, I think. Look, I, I'd love to reach out. Uh, that sounds like a terrific uh, voice to bring on. And so we have one final question, and it's not necessarily part of the final four, but it's an important question nonetheless. And it's if somebody wants to reach out to you, Drew, what's the best way that they can get in contact? Um, email is probably good. 
And that's D, like Drew, D Cunningham at Dilwig, D-I-L-W-E-G dot com. Drew, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And we have to have you on in the future. Thank you, Gordon. I appreciate it. It was fun. So thanks a lot. Thanks again to Drew. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a follow, a subscription. All your interactions truly matter and help us get guests like Drew. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.